This is Democracy in Lockdown, a weekly virtual conversation on the latest news about the coronavirus crisis and what it means for our democracy. This podcast is presented by Unlock Democracy. We campaign for a better democracy and a new written constitution built and owned by the people. Hello and welcome to the last Democracy in Lockdown episode. My name is Sam and I'm the Campaigns Officer at Unlock Democracy and Trudy is here with me one last time as well. Hey Trudy. Hi, I'm Trudy and I'm the Campaigns and Operations Officer. Can you believe this is our last episode, Sam? It's a weird one. Like I remember saying to you and others that did April even happen and (laughs) you know I feel that mostly about the last two months as well but it seems like in a time where there's not really any shape to one week or the next, this has kind of provided a bit of a, uh, a routine for us and has given us a sense of like thinking back to, oh, that's what was going on with the crisis at this point and seeing how things have developed a bit rather than the whole thing being one shapeless mass. So that's certainly one thing I've taken for it. What are your feelings about this right now? I think that's a really good point you make about it, given some structure to this whole period for sure it makes me take stock week by week of the different effects that it's having on people and as well on myself like taking the time to reflect rather than just um continuing on with work as we do um but taking stock of what is happening and how that's affecting people i think has been really important and has helped us in many more ways than just uh with the podcast i think yeah totally and i think thinking about as you say, having the space to engage with what actually is going on at the moment, what trends do we see happening has been a really useful way to plan other aspects of our work. So yeah, it's been great. So last week we talked about the climate crisis and how the UK's undemocratic system let the fossil fuel industry squeeze out the people. We heard from EJ and Oliver from UKSCN, their fight for climate justice and how participation and solidarity should be at the heart of all social struggles. And I just want to extend my thanks again to them too. I think feel like that was a really great episode. Absolutely. It fills me with the kind of useful energy that I remembered when I was there as well. This week we'll be zooming out to discuss the whole podcast and to look at what we've learned from it, what are the key takeaways and what we need to do next if we're trying to get a, a democratic recovery after all this. So stay with us. So for our last news roundup, uh, we have a couple of items today that have come up. So Boris Johnson has announced another commission on racial inequality in the UK, to which David Lammy, the Labour MP for Tottenham, who chaired his own review into the experience of BAME people in the criminal justice system in 2017, asked the BBC's Today programme, if he was serious, why are there no details about how it will be staffed, its remit, its terms of reference and its timetable? Footballer Marcus Rashford is speaking up about child poverty in the UK and specifically food poverty. He's written an open letter to MPs to encourage them to make a U-turn on the decision to cancel the food voucher scheme over the summer holiday period. And the Department for International Development is to officially emerge with the Foreign Office from September. This comes at a time of major ongoing review of foreign defence security and aid policy, prompting comments from some members of parliament to say that this was to maximise gains to UK business rather than focus on humanitarian approaches to alleviate poverty and distribute aid. Ten years ago today, 
this Savile report concluded that it was a British soldier who fired the first shot in Derry, Londonderry, which led to the deaths of 13 people in the event now known as Bloody Sunday. This was a huge watershed moment in Northern Irish politics, and which is being celebrated this week, and the report itself taking 12 years to complete. And with that, let's kick off. So soon we'll be going through all of the episodes one by one to talk about what we've learned from those and maybe what's changed about the situation since we first recorded those. But first, let's have a reflection on the big picture takeaways from the whole series. So how I would categorise my top three thoughts about this are that there's really been a boost in community spirit and community response that's been organised in a really organic way to this crisis that has really brought to light the inherent community feel that people have that has been really submerged under the surface by the type of society that we live in. And I think the social dynamics of this are really, really something that we can't underestimate. I keep thinking about the Black Lives Matter protests and how they've exploded over the past few weeks and thinking, this isn't the first time this has happened. What is it about what's going on right now that is making these protests so explosive and so influential in a way they haven't been for some time? And I really am wondering whether when we're seeing things like mutual aid groups popping up, where uh, climate protesters, as we heard last week, are talking about the need to build solidarity between different groups, that the size of this response, particularly in areas that haven't had protests in a long time. It's something to do with people's changing, changed perceptions about what community is, how they perceive other people in their community and whether they have things in common. So the possible revival of community and the, just the feeling that we're going to act and look after our people regardless of what the government doing is one really interesting thing for me. The next thing I think is that the lack of accountability and scrutiny at the heart of British government and politics has really been shown to be on acid, let's say, this time. So this has been a problem for years and years and years. But if we just look at the litany of scandals that have erupted since the start of the pandemic, from locking down too late, from the critical shortages of PPE, to the fiasco with Dominic Cummings, where the government went out to defend him despite a clear breach of the lockdown rules, even though the Scottish chief medical officer had to resign after a similar breach. The same happened with an English senior medical officer as well and there's just no there's not been any any reckoning for that and there's no scope for that to happen in the the near future Trudy are there any things about accountability that you've particularly noticed have been really bad during this period something that we'll touch on on the lessons learned is the coronavirus act and subsequent legislation that has been passed through that and statutory instruments they've been kind of rushed through to a point where it's been very very there have been very limited scrutiny on any of this i think retrospectively we're going to find a lot of those inequalities in power structures exposed uh, through the way that the government has handled all the various crises that have come to light during the pandemic Absolutely. And I get the sense that in this country, we, rather than scrutinise things and stop bad things happening at the time, we have commissions many decades later that say that someone somewhere did did something wrong and that there were very serious consequences to it. So your bit in the news about Bloody Sundays may be an example of that. The, The final thing that I would throw into this is what the lockdown has shown is that change can happen very quickly. So we've seen certain victories on the migration Act where campaigners didn't expect those to happen because of the 
very obvious role that key workers and and people in, in low in low paid uh, jobs have had during this crisis. We've seen things like the furlough scheme, which is an unprecedented economic intervention in peacetime. And we've seen certain public services nationalised or underwritten in a way that they haven't been previously. And because it's so difficult to hide the deep rooted issues um, in society from inequality of access to services to incomes, this is something that has really, I think, made a lot of people realise what the issues are that many people affect in society. It's been more difficult to stay in your bu bubble than it has been in recent years. But I think what we also need to reflect on is that change is not automatic. And we're already seeing attempts to roll back a lot of this stuff. The, uh, there's been a very organised uh, campaign to lift lockdown in England. I know here in Wales, the, the Conservatives are pushing a very similar campaign here. So change can happen very quickly, but it's not guaranteed. And if those of us that want to see change um, are serious about that, then we need to take an active role in making that change happen. I think you see with what's coming from your first, first point, like what's coming under the Black Lives Matter movement and the ability to mobilize very quickly as well. But you could, it also exposes the inequalities that are in the system because these people aren't getting their voice heard. If you like this podcast, Click the subscribe button and follow us on social media. So we're just going to do a bit of a recap of some learning points we've taken from the previous 10 episodes. So episode one was the uh, general emergency powers with the upcoming Coronavirus Act at the time, uh, the crisis in general and what that means for our democracy. Uh, it was still very new. We had basically lockdown we had been working from home for maybe a couple of weeks at that point uh, we were just starting to grasp our new way of living um, expressing concern about the ability to scrutinize government actions when we asked for feedback there seemed to be a lot of fear and reticence in the air about an impending power grab from the government and that was felt across a lot of our members and also uh, from some feedback we got on social media as well in hindsight the implication of these powers have gone very quiet in public debate to be honest, we're already almost halfway through the six-month period before Parliament has to vote on whether to extend its powers. And the question remains is, will we see attempts to tighten the powers further in response to recent protests? In episode two, Trudy and our colleague Sarah looked at civil liberties and policing powers and were joined by Kevin Blow from the NetPol Police Monitoring Network. So, during lockdown, many emergency measures were put in place, and there's a very thin line between keeping people safe and respecting fundamental rights. It's important to demand transparency and scrutinise the government's decisions, but also to document all the things that are going on. So after the crisis is over, we can hold the government accountable. And Trudy, I think you thought that when the Coronavirus Powers Act is put in the context of broader culture, government overreach and power structures of that system, questions come up about whether the response has been proportionate. We know that police overreach among BME communities is well established. So when you strengthen the powers of the police to act without any guidance, the abuse of that system is inevitable and it's inevitably people of colour that are going to be on the hardest edges of that. On top of this, the government's been resisting any real investigation or action into the disproportionate deaths of people from minority communities. When we consider that BAME people occupy a lot of the most exposed jobs in terms of low-wage jobs, we see how this intersects with class as well. With the rise of the Black Lives Matter protests, we need to pay even closer attention to what the police are doing and demanding everyone's civil liberties are upheld. 
And I wasn't, it wasn't really until I started to think about these episodes altogether that I really felt like there had been some great, really big learning points that we have got from that. So in episode three, which we did, Sam, together, uh, we looked at government scrutiny and accountability. So some learning points for that was that around this time we recorded this episode, we saw a lot more public scrutiny over the inaction of government in responding to the crisis as the lack of PPE in the NHS came to light. We watched the government dodge and deflect real concerns, further exposing the lack of accountability in central government. There has been a constant redefining of the limits, normalising and contracting just how much scrutiny can reach the government. The government is focused on controlling the media rather than effective action in a public health crisis. The over-centralised system incentivises this behaviour, with little channels for the public to hold the government to account. This lack of accountability has only become more obvious since this episode aired, let's say. (laughs) Despite the widespread ferocious rage of the public at Cummings' breaking of lockdown, ministers defended him, riding out the backlash until the news cycle moved on. The impact this may have had on on the public complying with lockdown regulations is hard to get our heads around, but needs to be investigated in the future. In episode four, me and my colleague Matthew looked at the mutual aid group and what opportunities we thought that might throw up in terms of building a new community politics. And what we learned from that is that local communities have been working together to help the neighbours through a crisis where the government has failed to protect key workers due to inaction. And this has been shown, for example, I live near a hospital at the moment and someone was making their own face masks and leaving them on their garden wall to hand out to people but also in terms of people not being able to get food, for example, if they're isolating. People in general see leadership coming from society and not from the government, and are discovering through participation in mutual aid groups that we can draw power from the community and drive collective action, which I think is a really empowering experience after being told for so many years that the only way you can change things is through individual action. It's interesting, though, that people didn't necessarily see the connection between that community action and politics more generally. And we were really hoping that after all this is over, people might think about how to translate that community collective campaigning into something that can affect the structures of our democracy more broadly. And as I said before, I'm really interested in whether certain things that have happened since then has its root in this, whether the big response to the Black Lives Matter situation is a result of people kind of resetting their daily routines, that they've been more connected to people they didn't know before, and feelings of solidarity and feelings of being connected to people and being able to organise things at short notice have been boosted by that. So I'm really excited to see what the implications of that are in the future. When we came to talk about key workers, how the media have been responding and democracy, we've seen that the media tends to focus on the drama of the day and can often ignore other important stories, for example, experiences of the homeless and the positive and hopefully not temporary rehoming in better conditions. This ultimately proves that permanently housing those who have found themselves homeless is possible. There had also been a very limited amount of reporting on the impact of COVID-19 on key workers or the economic impact on households themselves. The media can strengthen or weaken a democracy and the right to freedom of speech and a free press are some of our fundamental rights. In the UK, most popular media outlets have a close relationship with the government and most newspapers are owned by a handful of millionaires who can push their own agenda. Some media outlets will choose what sells over public interest, for example. 
With a few exceptions, it still feels like which aspects of the pandemic the media covers reflects the priorities of powerful people. This week, a row over providing meals for children in poverty has come to light because of a number of Tory MPs have taken up the fight. And one thing that the media is maybe not given so much attention to is the plight of workers and the details of the furlough scheme. So in episode six, we talked about the furlough scheme in detail. We gathered some stories from hospitality sector workers about their different experience of the furlough scheme and how it really reinforced existing power inequalities that are already there in society and that how these were exacerbated by the being a lack of clear instructions from the government to employers about how the furlough scheme applied across sectors. For example, it was totally up to your employer whether you should be furloughed and there was no legislation in England to enforce social distancing in workplaces. So it was left to outlets like Open Democracy to report how up to half of the workforce was still in work as usual, often in unsafe conditions where there was no need for it, like in call centres. So this mirrors the hierarchical power structures in our society where those dependent on the system have a limited say in how it works. One of the questions that this has thrown up since we recorded this episode is that the government intends to wind down the scheme in the autumn. And we're seeing increasing pleas from employers for rescue packages, which raises questions about whether people are going to be left in limbo and whether unemployment is going to skyrocket as the furlough scheme is tapered off. So in episode seven, our colleagues Matthew and Sarah talked about big money and the COVID-19 cash grab. And this is actually my favourite episode because it, it really looked behind the scenes at what the reasons were for why the government had made the decisions to tackle the crisis in the way that it had. They were talking about the hidden decision makers that have been shaping the government's response and what the real life consequences of those political choices were when they were made by a handful of people. It touched on lobbying, private donations and the multi-million pound contracts awarded to companies without a competitive tender. And what I enjoyed about this is that it explained how decision making in the UK political system is highly concentrated at the top and that most of us have no meaningful say in how these services are delivered. The impact of this is that the government will sometimes make decisions that have life or death consequences based on business decisions influenced by lobbyists. And we can see that in how companies that whose expertise is just in delivering outsourced government contracts have been delivering the test and trace program very badly with poorly trained staff and it not being able to be set up very quickly. This is in contrast to some of the expertise that has existed on a local level. For example, Ceredigion, a rural county here in Wales, has had almost unbelievably low infection rates and death rates because of the early steps taken by the public health team there. And rather than investigating what local expertise existed, the approach of the government has been to naturally outsource all of these functions to the private sector, usually to companies that have no specific expertise in the service being provided. So on episode eight, my favourite episode, uh, we spoke about migrant workers and the politics of exclusion with Dolores Modern, who's from the Latin American Women's Rights Service. Sam and Matthew spoke to her about the impact of the pandemic on the migrant workers and the migrant women that she works with. We find that informing people about their rights has been a crucial way of supporting migrant communities during the pandemic. The system is complicated, even for those who have studied the law, so it systematically excludes millions of people in the UK. And a democracy can only be real if it's inclusive. COVID-19 redefined the role of those previously deemed to be in unskilled or low-paid work, giving them key worker status and showing that they have always done essential jobs. Migrant women who hold many precarious cleaning, hospitality, 
and domestic work jobs make up part of this essential workforce, yet the system of the hostile environment, zero-hour contracts and lack of enforcement of employment law create a dangerous and often unlivable conditions for families and individuals. On top of this, no recourse to public funds from some migrant visas mean that those who have been let go cannot access public funds or services despite contributing to the UK economy. The furlough scheme is not reaching those who are the most vulnerable and the immigration bill provides no provision for low-skilled work which leaves the system open to exploitation and abuse through modern slavery or even trafficking. We'd like to take a moment to state that migrant voices matter in a healthy democracy, yet they are largely excluded in UK politics. When migrant communities have little to no voice in our political system, there is no incentive for politicians to act to strengthen their rights. In episode nine, Trudy and our colleague Matthew looked at the crisis and the generation gap and how the experience of young people during the pandemic mirrors a general experience of young people being underrepresented in politics and just generally not having their interests respected. So they talked about how students, young people have been impacted by the pandemic and what the upcoming recession might mean for their future. I remember graduating in the middle of an economic recession last time around in 2009 and had a member of the youth parliament talking about how concerned they were about that as well. Looking at the history, it's usually young people that suffer the most when economic recessions come about and are more reliant on sectors like hospitality, which has been most affected by the crisis. So some things that we learned from this were that we need a democratic system that works for every generation. And there's a couple of things that I think that needs to involve. We need to have a, a lower voting age and lot democracy is always supported votes at 16. But also we look at if we look at the first past the post voting system, it gives disproportionate power to property pensioners, essentially. And that's something that obviously needs to be changed if we're going to have a, a democratic system that works for all of us. The other thing I, I think we learned from this is that the issues that are prioritised in the political system is a result of who has the structural power in the political system. So we can see, obviously, how the climate crisis is not being given enough attention by the current government, and neither is the housing crisis, because these are things which are very much at the heart of young people's concerns, but which are either remote to the concerns of the older people that have the most power in the political system, or are actively uh, opposed to their interests in the case of housing wealth, for example. Absolutely. And we heard some of those concerns from EJ and Oliver whenever we spoke to them in the previous episode about the climate crisis and what that means for our democracy. We also spoke to them how they've been organising to continue their fight for climate justice. From that, we see that students and young generations are fighting the climate crisis like no other generation before. However, this is not a generational struggle. Around 85% of people in Britain care about the climate crisis, yet our political system keeps enabling fossil fuel companies to invest and give money to political parties. To achieve real climate justice, we need to demand our government to listen to science, listen to people, act democratically, and really act to stop the climate crisis. We also learned that without justice for all who have been discriminated against, we won't have social justice and we won't have climate justice. So there are some issues that we need to continue to scrutinise. so the Coronavirus Act is still active and they are still implementing the statutory instruments to that. We, we have to make sure that there is accountability and transparency to see what is rolled back from the Coronavirus Act and what is not. And if the, something isn't rolled back from the Act, why has that been the case? 
there may also be and very likely to be a commission on the government's handling of the COVID crisis and we would need to see how much the public would be involved in this process and also advocate for it. We need to also watch to see how the government reacts to the economy uh, taking a downturn, specifically relating to our as we did about the effects of austerity on the younger generations and ensure that the next measures that come into place is not just a version of austerity 2.0. And we also need to look at whose interests do these measures serve and speak up whenever we find inaccuracies or we find an abusive power in there. Absolutely, Trudy. And one thing that I remember from our episode in the media is how certain perspectives are represented because of the who owns those media outlets and what stories help uh, them further their agenda, basically. We've seen that in the pushes to reopen the, the economy over the safety and health concerns of people in general. And just thinking about how the real difficult experiences so many people have had over the last 10 years of austerity has not been really reflected in political reporting. It's been more about drama. There's a real risk that if we're not really mindful and paying attention to what's going on, that the huge economic fallout and the effects on ordinary people of the post-pandemic recession are just going to be forgotten as things go back to normal. So definitely hear what you're saying there. And one thing that we've been exploring throughout this series is how many of these issues we've been talking about, things that you might consider to be policy areas or areas of political concern are actually deeply embedded with the state of our democracy and how the strength of our democracy reflects how able we are to make real progress on those issues. One of the most important ones for me is the issue of the climate crisis, where we have extensive evidence now where just as the tobacco industry did it beforehand, the fossil fuel industry knew about the impacts of climate change decades ago. They hid that science from the public and have funded vehicles to delay political action and are still actively intervening in politics through things like fracking companies giving funding to the Conservative Party, only to be followed up by the Conservatives doing everything they could to push fracking on an unwilling public, but they were defeated eventually because the public feeling against that was so strong. And likewise, with the migration conversations we've had during this series when a huge part of your community is not officially part of the political community if you don't have citizenship rights if you don't have the right to vote you can't speak up for yourself and it's no good relying on other people to speak up for you you need to be able to do that for yourself so we need to look at a new model of citizenship that says if you've been in this country for a certain amount of time then you should have the full ability and rights to participate in the public life just as anyone else anyone else would. And the the way in which migrants have been able to be used as a political football to further other interests or to distract people from other issues is a reflection of the relative powerlessness of those communities within our political system. So what we've also been exploring during the series is the meaning of democracy and how we've often had a really narrow understanding of that in this country, where you vote once every few years for a government that then makes all the decisions on our behalf. And if you think about the original definition of democracy where the public rule rather than an oligarchy or or a monarchy it should be much more extensive than that and people should have various ways to input into decisions affecting their lives and their communities and that democracy doesn't just have to apply to the strict political sphere that we spend lots of our lives in the workplace and that that could be more democratic and that would improve our ability to take part in public life in other ways and equally if many decisions are taken out of the realm of the public through 
prioritization of services, for example, then the amount of say we actually have over the way our country is run is very limited. Yeah, and we see a gear change, let's say, in public participation in politics around the world, which isn't to be ignored. There definitely is a trend towards more deliberative processes, for example, with the Citizens' Assembly of Scotland and things that you've seen in the past with the Irish Constitutional Convention, for example. And I really think the British government could learn a lot from the processes that are already happening and have been happening for years, uh, keeping up to date with uh, current trends that only strengthen our democracy. Absolutely. So where does this leave us at the end of this podcast series that we've been doing? So we started this just a few weeks into lockdown, where it was partly an attempt to try and understand this new situation that was going on and trying to come to terms with how rapid change was happening. And we're now seeing that the context is changing as as lockdown is lessened, certainly in England and to a lesser extent the other nations of the UK. So we're increasingly not in a situation where it's a either on or off lockdown, but a new normal where there's varying stages of social distancing and varying extents to which different types of workers, for example, can go about their lives ordinarily. The impact of the pandemic on our democracy are not going anywhere fast, but it's just as unpredictable, I think, as it was at the start. So as that context changes, we're trying to be more proactive in using the opportunities that we're faced with to call for a more democratic society. So in the next few weeks, we'll be developing a campaign for a democratic recovery where we are centering in on some of the failures of our democracy that this crisis has revealed to us so far, particular things like accountability and scrutiny and the level of centralised power in this country. We're currently consulting on a list of principles that should inform a democratic recovery from the pandemic and we'd love for you to have your say in that and help us develop that campaign you can sign up to our email list to hear more details of that at the end of the episode and i want to say a huge thank you to sam to our colleagues matthew and sarah to anna who's behind the scenes and to all the people who joined us and gave their really valuable input to this podcast we wouldn't have been able to do it without some really interesting statements and guests uh, who had a unique input that we couldn't have brought to the dialogue and thanks so much to you our listeners who joined us throughout this podcast series our episodes are still available on spotify itunes and more so if you missed one you can still catch up Absolutely. So if you've just listened to this summary, if you've got time, you can listen to the full episodes to get a real sense of what each discussion was about. As the context of the pandemic changes, we're moving from reflecting and trying to understand the situation to trying to influence what comes next. So if you want to be part of that by being part of our democratic recovery campaign, please join our email list. Details about how you can do that are in the show notes. We'd love to have you on board. Thanks to you, Trudy, for having these discussions together. I've learned a lot about your take on things and I've learned a lot about Northern Irish politics, which as a a Welsh person is always really appreciated as well. I've uh, enjoyed the opportunity to not make everything about England. I mean, I would say for you, Sam, as well, that the only insight I ever get about Wales is from yourself. Uh, and has been because it's not covered at all in the news whatsoever. So uh, thank you for that and for those uh, special inputs. And thanks for listening. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this podcast, 
Please subscribe and share.